Welcome. It is good to see all of you in one room. You will notice that we have changed the foyer to make it a little more uh, welcoming in there. And one of the things that you'll see hanging in the foyer, uh, for those of you who are members of our church, is our church covenant on the day that we reconstituted as a church. If you didn't see it, I'd encourage you to just go out there and be thankful for and reminiscent of uh, the good work that God has done and is doing in the life of our congregation. Your very presence today uh, is a testimony to the work that what, uh, of what God is doing here at Christ Church Westchester. For all who are guests and visitors, uh, we are so glad that you have come. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. Our time together will be greatly helped by you following along in a copy of God's Word. And if you do not have a copy here with you, you should be able to fi- be able to find a Bible underneath the seat in front of you. If you don't have a copy that you can call your own, we would love for you to take that home with you uh, so that you can have a Bible that you can read and understand and study and learn more about Jesus, the Christ, the one who gave his life as a ransom for the people that he so loved. Uh, Ecclesiastes begins on around page 553. I'm going to begin reading in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1. The preacher writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, And he speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself were here speaking to us today. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate a time for war, and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be, already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is truth. It is a light shining in a dark place. And we pray now as we turn our attention to it, to study it, to hear it preached, to learn from it together, that you might answer the prayer of our brother Terry from earlier in the service. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see the truth of God revealed in the pages of Scripture. Father, we pray as we turn our attention to your word that you would comfort us. We ask, Father, for those who are not yet Christians, that you might 
bring them to the point of salvation and conversion today, that you might cause them to be born again. Father, we ask for all of us that you might reveal sin to us, that we might repent or be driven into deeper repentance and deeper faith as we trust in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, your Son, the Savior. Lord, help us now. And we ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Long before Turn, Turn, Turn to Everything There Is a Season became an international hit in late 1965 when it was adapted by the Birds, or before Pete Seeger composed the song in 15 minutes because he was mad at his publisher in the late 1950s, the preacher's lyrics in verses 1 through 8 struck a chord with the human heart simply because of their beauty, celebrating the orderliness of God's creation and what has become the world's most famous poem about time. God has, the preacher tells us in verse 11, made everything beautiful in its time. So in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, the preacher brings together both the big picture, the whole of life under heaven, and all of the individual parts the seasons of life under heaven, and begins to explain how it is our lack of control over either that actually give us hope as we move forward in the days ahead. Friends, it is only when we learn that we are bound within time and God is not, that we will actually be set on a hopeful path to live the good life that the preacher is calling us to in the book of Ecclesiastes. A poem and two points will frame our time together this morning. Notice first a question. What time is it? Look again in verses 1 through 9. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. Just as the created world has an observable rhythmic pattern built into it, with the rising of the sun and its setting, or the flow of all streams into the heart of the sea, so too the preacher's poem teaches us that our lives within this world experience their own regularities and cadences that ebb and flow with the sands of time. As much as we might not want it to be true, there is, verse 1, a season and a time for every matter under heaven, fleshed out in verses 2 through 8. There are no exceptions. But the preacher communicates that there are no exceptions to all of the seasons that we experience in one of the most artistic ways. I wonder if you noticed it. There are 28 items listed in 14 pairs in verses 2 through 8. This means that the list is divisible by seven, a number symbolizing perfection in the Bible. This is a complete summary of all of the seasons of life. It encompasses the totality of all things contained within the experience of any human life. Brothers and sisters, for anyone who has ever wondered, if there is any meaning or purpose to the sorrows and successes of this life. Verses 2 through 8 are actually meant to be a comfort to us. The seasons and times of your life and my life are represented in all of the movements of the preacher's poem. Nothing in your life is by accident. Nothing in your life is wasted. Absolutely everything in your life, down to the smallest detail, comes in its season and lasts for the proper amount of time. So in verses 2 through 8, the preacher tells us life is composed of joy and sorrow, of building up and destroying and taking down, of living and dying, 
each coming at the proper time, each one reminding us that we are creatures of time, not yet able to partake of the joys of eternity, teaching us that no one can be happy who has not yet come to grips with the reality that life is full of both changes and sorrows, as well as continuity and joy. Friends, part of living the good life that the preacher is calling us to is accepting that we are mortal, that we are creatures, that we are governed by time. But I'm convinced that you already believe this. And I'm convinced that the frustrations that so many of us experience in this life is not because we do not believe that we are mortal or that we are creatures or that we are governed and bound by time, but because we do not know what time it is. And when we expect the right thing at the wrong time, we are met with frustration and we are filled with anxiety and we are prone to despair. The seasons of life in those moments catch us off guard and their duration in our life actually confuse us and throw us off course. This is exactly what the preacher's poem is trying to teach us. So that we are not caught off guard by all of the seasons and times of life. So that they don't toss us to and fro like the waves of the sea. It tells us that not all seasons of this life are the same. There is a time to be born and there is a time to die. There is a time to plant and there is a time to harvest what is planted. There is a time to break down and there is a time to build up. Some of these seasons are understood to be bad, while others are understood to be good. There's a time to kill, and there's a time to heal. There's a time to weep, and there's a time to mourn. There's a time to laugh, and there's a time to dance. Some of these seasons are personal to us. There's a time to hate, and there's a time to love. Some of these seasons are socio-political. There's a time for war and a time for peace. And some of them are just neutral, neither good nor bad. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. But all of these seasons teach us that nothing in this world, nothing in this world is ours forever. There's a time to keep and then there is a time to cast away because so many of these seasons simply happen to us. Birth and death, war and peace, reminding us that ultimately we have no control over any of the seasons of life that we experience. You had no choice in so many of the times and seasons that you personally have experienced, and you do not know when or how you're going to die, but you all know that you will die. As David Gibson noted, we make real responsible decisions every single day, but in reality... We each know that the seasons of life are almost completely out of our hands. There is a time for everything, but we are not arranging them on our stopwatch. I'll take a week of happiness, two days of sadness, and then a month of neutrality, please. Without this perspective, as we read the preacher's poem, we will be theologically unprepared for the moments of our life, believing that if we or someone that we love experience some of the seasons in the preacher's list, then God does not love us or them. Brothers and sisters, that is exactly what the devil wants you to believe. 
God doesn't love you. God doesn't notice you. God doesn't care about what is taking place in your life or how sad you happen to be right now in this moment. I'm here to tell you that that is wrong thinking. Or we will be relationally unprepared, assuming that if we or someone that we love experience some of the seasons listed here in the preacher's poem, then they have done something to deserve it. And as one pastor noted, we will often hurt others who must walk through what we have tried to avoid and prefer not to think about. Brothers and sisters, some of you do not know how to think rightly about God or walk relationally with other people when they experience times and seasons that you have committed your entire life to avoiding. Difficult conversations, hard relationships, awkward moments. So with the best of intentions, you say some of the most unhelpful things. When are you going to get married? Don't you want a spouse? Are you ever going to try to have kids? When are you going to get a real job? Why are you still grieving when that happened so long ago? God knows that you're going through this, and He doesn't like it either. Pray about it and ask God to make you content. That's what I did, and it helped me. Friends, a word of advice from the preacher. Simply because you have the opportunity to say something and feel compelled to speak does not mean that you should. But others of you have been mishandled by the very people that you love so very much when you have experienced things that they have sought to avoid and were therefore theologically unprepared to think about or relationally unprepared to listen to. And though I am sorry for what you have experienced, I am aware that I cannot take that pain away from you this morning. But what I can do is remind you that Jesus Christ, the mighty friend of sinners, was acquainted with grief. He is an all-sufficient Savior who sympathizes with you in your weakness and in your brokenness and in all of those sad moments of your life that no one sees into and in the darkness where you pray or in your thoughts where you're thinking. And when the sorrows of your heart are many, know that the man of sorrows hears your prayers. And brothers and sisters, he invites you to cast all of your cares upon him because he loves you. With this poem, the preacher of Ecclesiastes is preparing us ahead of time for what is awaiting us in time. And it begs a very simple question. Are you ready? And do you know what time it is? Because if you're not, and if you don't, then weeping and laughing, mourning and dancing will be indistinguishable from one another and rendered meaningless in this life. You'll pave over grief, and you'll skip over opportunities to celebrate. You'll work too much and never go on vacation. You'll comfort no one and never be comforted. But if you are, and if you do, then the sorrows of this life will be taken far more seriously because they are genuinely sorrowful and sad. And the joys of this life, from the smallest thing to the greatest thing, will be all the more refreshing because you are aware that it is all out of your hands anyways. As each one comes in its season and for its time.
There was a time in this church's life when there was great sorrow, and it was very hard. And for those of you who were members at that time and are here today, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of us didn't know if we were going to make it out of that season, but God had a very different plan, and He has us in a new and different season now, and we rejoice in what He is doing right now because of what He has led us through in the past. We look forward to the days ahead because we are confident that He will see us through even when we cannot see clearly because what He has faithfully led us through in all of the seasons and times of this church's life in the past. Fellow members of Christ Church Westchester, everything taking place around us right now, from simple things like rearranging the foyer and painting doors, to big things like adding and removing members at members' meetings, to beautiful things like people not related to Boyd Davis caring for Boyd Davis, to hard things like ministering to and caring for our chronically afflicted, Teach us that there is a season and a time for everything under heaven, and God will see us safely through as we share this life together. And if you're not a member of this church, we invite you to join us. We have a class after this service today. Lunch is provided. We would love for you to stay. Church membership is biblical. You'll hear that all the time here. Jesus established the local church. The apostles did their ministry in the context of the local church. And when you read the pages of the New Testament, that is church life. You want to be part of the church, no matter what the world has told you or what you might have thought previously. Those are the people for whom Jesus Christ came to rescue and reconcile to himself. Church membership is a prerequisite to the Lord's Supper. It is the meal of the gathered people of God, where we come together and celebrate what He has done for us, and you want to celebrate in the Lord's Supper. Membership in the local church is the church's affirmation that you are a citizen of God's kingdom, that you are representative of Him to the nations, that you are a part of the universal invisible church because you fellowship with the local visible church. And it is within the accountability structures of the local church that Christians live their lives and experience community in the body of Christ. Membership helps you know who you are primarily and chiefly responsible for. All of us want our lives to matter. Everybody wants to change the world. God says you change the world by being members of a local church and changing your community. Those are the people that you're to care for. Those are the people you're to pray for. Those are the people you're to weep with. Those are the people you're to celebrate with. Those are the people that you are to rebuke when they walk away from Christ. Those are the people that you are to encourage when they are tired. Those are the people that you are to help hold up in the difficult moments of life. It helps you know so that you know exactly who you're responsible for. And it builds up the witness of the gospel that invites the unbelieving world to something better. The boundaries of membership is not simply meant to keep people out. It is to show the unbelieving world something compelling, defined by our common belief in Jesus Christ. And in this way, the church is the great evangelism plan of God. You want to help reach Westchester with the gospel? Help strengthen the church of Jesus Christ. And this community will never be the same. Preacher's poem teaches us that life is complex 
is filled with good times and hard times and in-between times and a whole manner of lifestyle choices and decisions that often require wisdom that evades us at every moment if we don't know what time it is, which is why he immediately follows up his poem with verse 9. What gain has the worker from all of his toil? There is a time for every matter under heaven. And life is a poetic arrangement of good things and bad things, of complex things and subtle things. And at the end of it all, what have you gained from all of the seasons of your life? Nothing. It really wouldn't be a sermon in Ecclesiastes if we didn't say something like that at some point. In verse 9, the preacher returns to the theme of chapter 2, verse 22, and the thesis statement of chapter 1, verse 3. And he continues to ask, how do we gain in this life? How do we benefit in this life? Where does profit come from in this life? And in so doing, he teaches us that all of the poetry of verses 1 through 8 yield nothing without the prose of verses 10 through 15. The poetry sets up the question that the prose seeks to resolve. A question, what time is it? Notice second, perfect timing. Chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 10. I've seen the busyness that God, the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Verse 9 taught us that the pattern ordered of this world does not lead us to gain in the midst of it. Even though there's structure to how all things are taking place. We see that in chapter 3. We see that in chapter 1. The sun rises and the sun sets. There's a time for birth and a time for death. All streams flow into the heart of the sea. There's a time for war and there's a time for peace. Even though there is order, even though there is structure, it does not mean that we will gain or find profit in the midst of it. It's a depressing observation in one sense for sure. But in verses 10 through 13, the preacher adds a perspective as he continues to layer his teaching here in the book of Ecclesiastes to help us see a more robust argument and treatment of what he's trying to teach us. He has, verse 10, seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And from all of that, he has learned, verse 11, that God has made everything beautiful in its time. Everything is beautiful in its time. From birth to death, from war to peace, from mourning to dancing, from weeping to rejoicing, everything is beautiful in its own way, in its own time. And from this, he concludes, verse 12, there's nothing better for men and women to do than three things. Be joyful, do good as long as they live, and take pleasure in all their toil. What separates the message of Ecclesiastes from the epithet of nihilism? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. 
the realization that I'm not and you're not the only actor. There is another actor whose actions are decisive, and it's right in the text. Look at verse 10. God is orchestrating our business. Verse 11. God is acting from the beginning to the end of our lives. Verse 13. God has given these gifts to mankind. When I was a kid, I was often frustrated when my mom wasn't doing exactly what I thought that she needed to be doing at any particular moment. I was ready to leave for practice, but she was thinking about my dinner afterwards. I was ready to go to bed, but she was concerned with my clothes making it into the hamper so that she could wash them so that they would be clean for the next day. I was on my way out the door to Chaz's house, but she was on the phone making sure that Chaz and his parents were actually at the house that I was heading to. I was frustrated because I didn't see the bigger picture that she saw. A hungry kid sitting on a hot tennis court after practice waiting on his parents to get off work. A middle school kid being made fun of by his peers from wearing dirty clothes day after day after day because all he thought about was tennis and football. A lonely kid sitting all by himself outside someone else's house when they're not home. Although I didn't recognize it at the time, all of her actions provided me with security. And they actually gave me a freedom because I was free from all of the stress and worry of coordinating practice with dinner or tying up the loose ends of the day in preparation for the next or trying to balance all of the decisions about time and place. The preacher tells us that God and God alone is the one who sees the end from the beginning and the tapestry that is our life and our existence. So God and God alone is the one who understands accurately and rightly how everything is beautiful in its time. And I say that, and I know that that is not easy to hear for some of you. Some of you are suffering or have recently suffered. And it is really hard when we're suffering to see any beauty in it. It certainly doesn't feel beautiful. It feels the exact opposite of what we want to experience. And if we're honest with ourselves, and if we were honest with everybody else here, we would stand up here and say, we actually hate all of those moments. We don't love them. We didn't ask for them. We haven't invited them into our lives. And we long for something else. Whatever your suffering is, your experience is consistent with every other sufferer to that degree in this room. And when the good things are going in our life, it's hard not to think, no matter what we know to be true in the Bible, that we have finally done something right to kind of tip the scales in our favor. We finally started living the right way and doing the right things and praying the right kind of prayers and attending the right kind of church or whatever it might be. And now all of a sudden, God is pleased. And so he hands out a different set of cards. The author of Ecclesiastes is telling us that we can't see the end from the beginning. 
We don't understand how each of these moments fit into the tapestry that is our life, into the mosaic that God is building to be something beautiful, more beautiful than you could have ever hoped for, more desirable than you could have ever dreamed, more wonderful than you feel that it will be right now, more perfect than you think your life is or will be if all of the circumstances change. But friends, when we begin to hear what he's teaching us, we are free from all of the stress and worry to make all of life's providences balance. It frees us to experience each season as it comes to us for the time, no matter how long that might be, that the Lord gives it to us. Because some of the seasons that are so desirable are so oppressive at the same time. Ask any parent. They desire it, and then they're thinking, why did I want to do this? It's so hard. Ask anybody who's ever gotten a job. I want a job to care for my family. There are so many demands on me right now in my life. Ask anybody who ever tried to go to school. I need an education. This is way more difficult than I thought it would be when I was studying it. It frees us to receive each of those seasons and not try to make them balance in the great tapestry that is our life. Or as David Gibson said, part of being wise in this world is learning to accept that we have very limited access to the big picture. To be sure, we often want access to the big picture. For God has put eternity into man's heart. But the point is that we cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. God is not being unkind to us by not sharing it. The point is that we are not built to understand the big picture precisely because we live in time and God does not. If we could see the end from the beginning and understand how a billion lives and a thousand generations and unspeakable sorrows and untold joys are woven into the tapestry of perfect beauty, then we would be God and would not need God. For those of us who are prone to see God's purpose and His nearness only in times of smiles and victories in this life, the preacher highlights for us unsettling things that wreak havoc on our attempts to discern God's moment-by-moment presence in our lives. And as so many of us have found to be true in our own lives, it is actually the unsettling, difficult, hard sufferings that actually make us more dependent upon God and help us to see Him more clearly, just like it did for Job. But for those of us who are prone to see the world only in terms of pain and sorrow and pessimism, the preacher highlights delightful things that nurture our vision of God and trust in His perfect timing because He sees something that we don't and is working towards something that we aren't. Brothers and sisters, you will only trust God's perfect timing in your life when you know what time it is. Otherwise, we will only feel loss. Where did the time go? Or frustrated fatigue. There aren't enough hours in the day. Or a frantic sense of urgency. There aren't, uh, I've got to make the best use of my time. Or a painful regret. I've wasted all of those years. Or a restless waiting. 
When will the time come? Or cautious fear, I don't want this time to be now and arrive. But when we, by faith, learn to discern the times and seasons of life, we will see that time, as Zach Eswine so eloquently says, in God's hands, graciously apprentices us to be joyful, to do good as long as we live, and to take pleasure in all of the toil of this life. The question, what time is it? Perfect timing. Notice third, time Lord. Look at verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. The preacher makes it crystal clear that we have a wonderful reason for trusting a timeless God with the times of our lives. Whatever God does endures forever, verse 14, and God seeks what has been driven away, verse 15. Because God lives forever, what He does endures forever. It is permanent, immutable, unchangeable. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken away from it. His plan is irrevocable. But now we finally get an answer for why God set the times and seasons of life the way that He did. Verse 14. God has done it so that, purpose clause, circle that, so that, and if you like to write in the side of your Bible, purpose so that people fear before Him. The time Lord's purpose in setting times and seasons of this life the way that He did was to make us aware of our own helplessness. We cannot control the times. I know that some of you are working to do that. You long for control. You labor for control. You are trying to control. You are trying to take control. You are trying to get a grip on reality. You will never have control. And our total dependence, we do not even know the times. No matter how wise we might be, we will never see it all. So that we might fear Him. As Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 29, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Friends, the time Lord is the Lord of time, setting the times, controlling the seasons, the sovereign, unfrustrated, unchallenged, unrivaled rule of God is meant to be a comfort to us in a world that seems to be going bananas. In a world that is filled with chaos and anarchy and sadness And sorrow, it is comforting to know that nothing, absolutely nothing, ever happens apart from His design. And it is simultaneously a call to repentance. So that people may fear Him. Do you fear God? Not do you know about God. Not have you heard about God. Not are you the member of a church. Not do you regularly attend church. Not do you call yourself a Christian, but do you fear God? He alone is God, 
And the preacher tells us he alone seeks what has been driven away. The image is suggestive of shepherding where the farmer or the shepherd deliberately seeks out the animal from the fold that has gone off and he finds it and he brings it back. And in the case and context of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we're meant to be thinking about all of the events of human history, all of the events of our lives that time has just chased away. To us, they are lost. They are gone forever, but not to God. He will dial back time. He will fetch the past and bring it right into his present, and he will bring it to account. As the apostle says, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Brothers and sisters, when you stand before the Lord of time and he brings all of your past into his present and he judges it, what will you say? You didn't give me enough time. Oh, brothers and sisters, he has given you enough time. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that the Lord from these words proclaims to you that you can be saved. Today, He has brought you to hear the eternal life words so that you might be comforted by the gospel or so that you might be called to repentance by the gospel. Repent of your sins. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. Turn away from the wickedness that you are doing and be saved by the one who rules all of time and has sent his son in the fullness of time, born of woman, born under the law, to bear the curse for us so that we might receive the forgiveness of sins. Again, the apostle says in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere, everywhere, all people no exceptions, to repent, to turn, because he is fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead in time. The sands of time Turn, turn, turn. And are leading us to the day when Jesus Christ will come again and He will save all of those who have trusted in Him by faith. And He will judge all of those who have refused to repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ. What is holding you back from him today? Believer, why would you refuse to repent of the sin that is in your life? He will call it to account. Unbeliever, God has shown you mercy today. He has brought you here to hear the good news of Christ. You too can be saved and be one of the people of God 
Trust in Christ. Do it right now. He will save you. Do not leave without pleading the mercy of Christ. He is a faithful and forgiving and kind and compassionate and gracious Savior. He has been merciful to everyone in this room who has trusted to Him. There is no sin anyone in this room has committed that He is refusing to forgive forgive if if they have not repented of their sins. Come to Him now. The only rational response is what the preacher is giving us, is to fear before him, which issues forth in a life centered on God. Because we finally realize that we do not sit at the center of time. You see, the book of Ecclesiastes, in so many ways, is trying to knock you off course. Everybody in this room lives at the epicenter of everything taking place around them. And everybody in this room is a starring character in their own movie, and everybody else is a supporting actor. And the book of Ecclesiastes says, you are a supporting character in what God is doing from the beginning of history to the end of history. And what sits at the very center of it is what Jesus Christ has done for his people. And all who trust in Jesus Christ will be saved. He is the creator. We are merely creatures. So give up seeking profit from this age and enjoy the free gift that God has given, eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Brothers and sisters, that is what this table, the Lord's table, reminds us of. It reminds us every time we come to it of the free gift of God secured for us through the broken body and the shed blood of Christ Jesus our Lord. On the night that Jesus Christ suffered, He sat before the very people who would betray him, and he instituted the sacrament of his body and his blood as a sign and as a pledge of his love for the continual remembrance of the sacrifice of his death and for the spiritual sharing in his life. In these holy mysteries, we are made one with Christ and Christ with us, and we are made one body in him and members one of another. Friends, having this in mind and his great love for us and in obedience to his command, his church, the people of God, render to the almighty God never-ending thanks for the creation of the world and the continual providence that he brings about in our lives for his love for all mankind and for the redemption of his people that he has brought about through Jesus Christ who took upon our flesh and humbled himself to the point of death, that he might make us the children of God by the power of the Holy Spirit and exalt us to everlasting life. But if you're going to share rightly in these mysteries, if you're going to celebrate rightly in the Lord's table, if you're going to actually be nourished by this spiritual food, we have to remember the dignity of the table when we approach it. I call upon all of us this morning to consider how Paul exhorts people to prepare themselves carefully before eating the bread and drinking the cup. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. 
That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we, are, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Brothers and sisters, the benefit is great when we approach the Lord's table. If with repentant hearts and living faith, we receive the Lord's Supper. But Paul tells us the danger is also great. If we approach the Lord's table improperly, not recognizing the body and blood of the Lord. I call all of you right now in this moment to judge yourself before the Lord. Let's pause for a moment of silence and reflection. Father, as we prepare for the table, we pray, Father, that you would forgive us of sins of anger and wrath, sins of lust and hate, and Father, that you might help us to repent of them now as we approach you. Amen. Friends, examine your lives and conduct by the rule of God's commandments this morning that you may perceive that if you have offended in what you have done or left undone, whether in thought or word or deed, Acknowledge it all before God with the intent of, intent of amending your life, ready to make restitution not only to God, but with other people. Being ready to forgive, just like you have received forgiveness from God. Hear the word of the Lord. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. If there is someone that you need to ask for forgiveness, or someone that you need to forgive, abstain from the Lord's table today, or go make it right with them while we sing the song that we're singing. Otherwise, do not approach the table. And then, having examined ourselves, making sure that we are right with God and with one another, because there is no such thing as someone who says, I love God, but has hate in their heart for their brother or sister. Then, confess your sins afresh, because He has promised you, brothers and sisters, if you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And for those who are weary and tired today, worn out by the sins of your life, hear afresh the words of Scripture. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who gave himself to be a propitiation for our sins. And not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. Repentance helps us approach God. It removes doubt. It gives us assurance of pardon. It strengthens our faith, brothers and sisters, as we approach this table. 
If you have repented of your sins and believed in Jesus Christ by faith, if you have been baptized, if you are a member in good standing of an evangelical church that preaches the same gospel that we preach, then we invite you to come to the Lord's table today and to celebrate with us that we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Would you stand and let's pray? Oh, Father, we pray and ask that you would help us as we sing these words now, thinking of what it cost the Son of God to secure our eternal redemption. He was crushed for us, but because of his death and now by his life, we have hope as we sing and approach this table. In Jesus' great, mighty, awesome name we pray. Amen.